and welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are members of the Allen NLP team at the Allen Institute for AI. Today we have Masakani, a grassroots organization whose mission is to strengthen and spur NLP research in African languages for Africans by Africans. We have two Masakani members with us today. Tassin Adewumi, PhD student at the Lulu University of Technology in Sweden, and Perez Ogayo, undergrad student at the African Leadership University in Rwanda. Hello. We will talk about research done in Masakani with, two, with the focus on two papers. The 2020 MNLP findings paper, Participatory Research for Low-Resource Machine Translation, a case study in African languages, that has recently been awarded with the Wikimedia Foundation's Award of the Year, and Masakani named Entity Recognition for African Languages, the best paper at the African NLP workshop at ESCL 2021. Congratulations on all these awards. All right, so we can start with introducing the term low resourcedness. How is this term used when we talk about it in the machine learning community and how other fields like sociology refer to it? Sure, so low resourcedness um different practitioners or different fields might have different definitions for it, but mostly I'm going to dwell on the definition that is relevant to our case, which is when dealing with languages and specifically African languages. So as when we were looking through the list of machine learning researcher, uh, low resource will identify languages for which few digital or computational data resources exist and is typically classified when you are in comparison to other languages. So like, for example, if you say language A is low resource, it's typically in comparison with another language B. And so we have high resource languages and low resource languages. And in our case, we find that most of the African languages, a greater percentage of them are low resource and we can break this down in terms of lack of um, digital representation and also lack of geographical representation in terms of the creators of the resources the language resources and also the people involved in machine learning research related to these languages and so it's a whole wholesome definition it's not just on the or language resources, so the text and the content. It's also on the people involved in the process of data curation to the process of building the models and also in evaluation. Yeah, and just to give you a few statistics around this, there are over 2,000 languages spoken uh, in Africa, but the number of uh, resources is notably smaller compared to Anglo-centric languages. And related to the last point about language and geographic diversity, in 2018, only five over 2,500 affiliations of the five major NLP conferences were from African institutions. Before we go deeper into those societal issues, let's illustrate the process of machine translation process in terms of required agents and interactions. In your paper, you had this nice illustration. Can you walk us through that? Who are the agents and how do you define them? Okay, so in the paper, we identified six um, agents. So we had the 
stakeholders, you had the content creators, um, the translators, the curators, um, evaluators, and also the language technologists. So I'll go through one of them one by one. We look at how they were defined. So for the stakeholders, this is where we start from. So they are broadly defined as uh, people impacted directly or indirectly by uh, the products of the various agents in the machine translation process. So these are people who organizations that uh, create the demand for the content in the various languages. So, for example, there are the people who, let's say, are the catalyzers of the different edges to do their various works. And then when you go to the next step, we'll have, uh, sorry, just before we proceed to the next step, there are things that the stakeholders will, will require and so that they can do the work of maybe catalyzing the process of creating machine translation systems. So they'll need to be able to speak and read in both the source and the, uh, or the, the source or the target languages so that there's that need for machine translation. And also they require access to technology, education, and electricity. And for content creators, so this uh, defi defines people who produce content in the various, in a particular language. And to define content, it's so, but at a content will be something like a creation um, of a certain language, so whether either spoken or written, and we can have it both as a digital or non-digital, like digital representations. And so content creators, you can think of them as people who create these resources, so either from personal reasons, so let's say somebody is blogging, somebody is a storyteller, or economic, and somebody mm -hmm. is, a, for example, a journalist or a reporter, or even political. So these are people who kind of create the content that we will be used to generate the data uh, that fuels the entire machine translation process. And we go to the next category, which are like the translators. And then these translators are people who they know both the source language and the target language. Uh, the source language being the language that was the, had the original content. So the content creator created some content. So this content is in a particular language. So the translator should know that source language and also should, be, should know the target language in order to translate the works of the content creator to their target language. So, and these people can be professionals, so professional translators, uh, researchers involved in the process, and I think later we are going to see how that can work. And also crowd workers, uh, people basically just contribute towards translation of content into various target languages. And so mm -hmm. since mostly with machine translation, we are involved with data that is digitally represented, they require access to keyboards and access to technology in addition to the language knowledge requirement. And so, and I think almost in the final step of the whole data collection process, we have the curators. And for this, we borrowed the definition of um, in Bender and Friedman 2018, where curators are defined as individuals uh, who are involved in selection of which content to include in a data set. So the content creators have already created the content and the translators have created the parallel opera. So the curators here come here to select which 
particular pairs are going to be given to the model so that we can create the machine translation system. And this may be taken into consideration various things are like what the, the, the system should learn, different categories that should be represented, or if the system is going to be gener a general one or maybe domain specific, uh, such kind of things. And so as usual, they, they need to have access to electricity, uh, digital devices, and a good knowledge of both the source and the target languages uh, also required. And so we move towards the modeling part of the process. And here we meet language technologists who are defined as individuals who they use the data sets and computational linguistic techniques to produce models that are going to do the actual machine translation. So we find that there are researchers or engineers and that take part in this process and they mostly require NLP knowledge and toolkits and access to computational resources. And last but not least, we have evaluators who are that they are tasked with determining and analyzing how the model that we have created has performed and so that we can know how to improve and also to know what exactly, because uh, with machine learning models, it's really important to know what your model has learned. And so, and the whole process of creating a model is kind of an iterative one. So they really play a, play a crucial role in giving feedback to the language technologies who can then implement it into improving the model. And the visual evaluator should uh, know both the target and the source language in order to do their work effectively. And so from our whole process and work, we found that it was very important if all these people and all these agents work together, learn from each other and shared knowledge. And because this resulted in an overall improvement in the quality of work that was produced. Interesting. There is a long way to language technologies. Yeah. I think you also gave an uh, interesting point about content creators need to have access to hardware like keyboards and electricity. And also you mentioned that colonial history that influenced what people feel safe to talk and write about. Anything else you can add to this? Yeah, I think, of course, we, we know the influence of the colonial past of um, many of the African countries. Uh, like, like you pointed out, this has um, had effect on even the customs within within the countries uh, and the language, the, the languages we speak in Africa. So this, it's important that all this are also taken into account when we do uh, research in natural language within the, the languages specified in Africa. I think going forward, it's important that just as we know that many of the systems are actually Anglo-centric, like you said earlier, I think one thing for Masakane is looking into the future, how we can also make this some of these models maybe more specific to you know African languages, some of the, the idiosyncrasies we see with African languages. For example, the issue of diacritics, the issue of, uh, which is of, of course, tonal marks. Then, of course, not all African languages are, are Latin. 
are based on Latin um, alphabet. So those those are things we should also watch out for. Yeah, you can't properly evaluate uh, machine translation for African languages if your evaluation scripts script doesn't work for this kind of uh, specificities you just described. Yeah, for some of the some of the parts of the pipeline that we talked about, these uh, discrepancies are kind of obvious, right? For I mean, we usually talk about how many of the models we build are Anglo-centric. I think we've talked about some of those issues on this podcast earlier as well. But can you give us more examples of uh, cases in terms of, say, content creation? One example was uh, you said how there isn't a good support for things like diacritics. Or are there any more examples there, like? the availability of the right kind of keyboards or anything else. Can you talk more about that, please? Yeah, I think some people have been making effort in that regard. Uh, Even if we don't have physical keyboards that are specific to African languages, we can make uh, soft keypads where people can easily download and then use. So that's very helpful. And that more of such are coming up. There's also been ongoing research with the regards to diacritic restoration, where researchers use machine learning to actually restore diacritics on on certain texts. Uh, And that can be very helpful. Even recently, we had uh, Africa, of course, like you mentioned, Africa NLP workshop co-located with EACL. And this was one other topic that came up uh, in discussions with other researchers where machine learning can actually help in this regard. Uh, Of course, it's not perfect, but it will give us at least more data to work with, more data that is rich in the kind of quality of content that we need for, for African languages. Yes. Yeah. So this illustration is, was really helpful for me to understand how, basically, when we think about uh, machine translation, we think about language technologies and evaluators that are all speak the same language. So it was really useful to understand who are other people in this process and how the process can be broken if there is no interaction between all of these agents. So a way to overcome these issues, you propose something you coined participatory research. Can you tell us what kind of research is that and how is it different from uh, conventional standard research we typically do in NLP? So with participatory research, and it's unique in a way that the different agents that are involved, the participants, are equally valued in the whole process and they are involved in various stages, either in one or all of them. And something that is very important to note is that, well, I'll just go straight to the case of language research. Um, you will involve people who are speakers of these languages or they come from geographic regions where these languages are spoken so they have interacted with um, the society and so this makes the whole process very rich in terms of the kind of knowledge cultural and the kind of things that you consider and also the kind of knowledge that you at the end of the day transfer to your model so instead of just maybe having them as, um, I'll just say, like, consultants or people who just come, like, after maybe they take a very small, like, significance in your whole research experience and process, they become active agents who contribute 
And it's not just a one-off process. They're also involved throughout. And so you find that at the end of the day, from what we saw is that we had a better quality and also we did like work that hasn't been done before. And mostly this was because of the barriers that exist in kind of like traditional research where you'll find that most researchers have advanced degrees. And when you put that in context, in the African continent, the number of people who actually transition from bachelor's to their postgraduate um, education, they're very few. Even when we just start from people who move from secondary to higher education, that's there are very, very few people. And so you find that that's something that was a huge, huge barrier and is contributing greatly to lack of um, representation of uh, Africans or people who have lived in the continent participating in research that actually affects them, that is about the languages that they speak, how they communicate. So with the participatory research, such barriers are lowered down or broken because there is no uh, limitation to your credentials. Like uh, nobody says that you have to have gone to university to participate. So you, everybody's welcome. And uh, what we saw is that people uh, naturally drifted to uh, things that they really cared about. So for example, there are people who cared more about content creation, there are people who cared about evaluation, and you find that it all, it works and it was very like synchronous. And we had so many people with different backgrounds. I think these are an analysis of the different backgrounds of Masakani members and you find we have a very large percentage of students who are in their undergrad. We have people from different fields, not just computer scientists or machine learning engineers. So we have linguists, we have translators, we have teachers, and we have people who are in other fields who are just like, this is something that is going to impact my community and that I feel like I can contribute so they can and contribute. Yeah, so maybe if Tosin can add a few more. Yeah, I think from your description, it's clear how this is different from traditional crowdsourcing. So I won't get into that. Let's go a little bit more into how how did Masakane come from participatory research? Where did you recruit your participants? And were there any prerequisites placed on joining the project? I would say, I mean, Masakane is a very open community of uh, researchers, uh, like uh, Perez hinted earlier, the, from with different people with different backgrounds uh, at different stages of the ladder of learning. Um, so that there's no restriction as to joining Masakane. Now, once you have the interest, even if you really don't have, I mean, we have members who are not even researchers, so to speak. They just have interest in language. They may just be linguistics. Uh, I mean, linguists, I mean. So once you have the interest, you're passionate about African languages, I mean, you can join it. And one thing that has been a very helpful backbone from Masakane, the Masakane community is the, the Slack, the Slack uh, tool, where, where anybody can join. Now, currently, uh, I think the last time I checked, we were were over 500 people on Slack. So, and you're free to join any of the channels you want to join and have a discussion, join in the discussion. 
So it's a very open community where anybody can join and contribute to the ongoing research, whether it's digital uh, data creation, data annotation, training models, evaluating models, uh, and, and all members are spread across the world, whether it's in the Americas, it's not just limited to people in Africa. So as long as you have interest in natural language processing, you have interest in Africa, then it, everybody's welcome. Got it. And how do you overcome the lack of uh, computational resources? And maybe at the very, very beginning where maybe you didn't have uh, as many language technology experts, how did you overcome that? One good thing with having a community such as Masakane is uh, everybody's always ready to chip in. I remember when we were at a point while working on the Masakane Name Entity Recognition for African Languages uh, project. David had to make a post. Uh, he was leading the project. He had to um, make a post about requesting resources uh, for training uh, some of the, the models. And people were willing to, to take on the task. Um, so we have researchers who have connected to certain labs. Sometimes they, they make available their resources. It's a good thing also that we have Google Colab, uh, where it's a great thing to have free compute to be able to actually train some of these models. Uh, and I think uh, there are also one or two collaborations where people or groups actually offer uh, to, to give us some computing resources. So having a community such as Masakane helps because everybody wants to chip in and then contribute in one way or the other. I just wanted to add on the fact that even though like when most of the times the new people who are joining are not like language technologists, the whole model is set up such, a, such that um, you find that uh, most of the time people join us are a translator or a content creator and then they get mentorship from senior members. Um, and you find that as time goes by, they become interested, and then with the guidance of members of Masakane, um, they advance uh, their knowledge, and we've had people transition into NLP. I think an example is me. When I came in, I was like, this is something that I'm interested in. I do not have the technical knowledge of how to go about this, but I'm willing to put in the work. And people directed me. I've had meetings with people to just explain code and concepts and like over time i've increased my knowledge and skills in the field and that is the story of so many other masakanians so you find that people grow members uh grow in their skill set so that they're able to participate not just in maybe as one type of agent they're able to transition into other roles also in the entire process, which is something that is really good about the community and something that I really appreciate and have benefited from. How do you decide what problems to work on and where does the motivation come from for working on a specific problem? Well, usually anybody is free to come up with any idea. And you know, we have such a, a great organizer, leader in Jade, who put together Masakane. She allows any initiative, you know, once once you have the idea, you speak about it, you make a pitch, 
and you're passionate about it, then you're free to to kick it off. You just usually we have a Zoom meeting every week, once a week, and you could come speak in that meeting, invite people to to join the initiative, set up a channel on Slack, and everybody goes on board. As long as you have the interest, you come on board, and then you could keep the conversation going on on Slack and 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 follow updates. So. Just about any initiative that, that will drive forward research in, in NLP uh, with regards to African languages is always welcome. Of course, like we're doing today, we've had work on machine translation for African languages. We've had name identity recognition for African languages. Currently, we have all the ongoing projects, speech research in African languages, chatbot, open domain chatbots in African languages. So there are quite a lot of initiatives that are coming on board as well. So it's a community that's open to so many ideas. We learn a lot from high resource, what you would call high resource, you know, uh, language uh, and the models that are available. And then we try also to adapt them to uh, no resource languages uh, and make the best of them. So all the initiatives are usually welcome. You mentioned there are a few hundreds of people on Slack already. Can you tell us how, how many people from how many countries there are and from how many continents? Yeah, that's a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> But I'll try. I mean, some of the meetings I've attended, some of the, the posts I've seen from people. I know there are people in Australia. There are people in the U.S., uh, South America, of course, Africa itself. People across Europe, including myself at the moment, even in Asia, I think, I think I've, yeah, I've gotten posts from people in Asia as well. So I know we're quite widespread, but I may not know all the specifics. That's all right. Yeah, I, I wanted to hear whether it's like in, international and it, it seems like it is, which is quite amazing. And in the beginning, we mentioned that Before you made this initiative in 2018, I think one could say that there were more language technologies outside of Africa, or at least those who participated in the major conferences. So when these people from other continents joined Masakane, uh, what did they gain from your community and what did you gain from them? So that's, that's true. I think for what people from the African continent gained from researchers, international researchers, was mostly um, talking into their expertise, because we found that, as you said, uh, most of them are the language technologists, the more experienced traditional researchers. So that transfer of knowledge into NLP methodologies and te techniques, our members of the community greatly benefited from that. And in the other direction, we find that they learned about the international researchers, they learned about the African languages from the speakers themselves. They also learned about some aspects of the culture and they're learning about um, what works because now we are working mostly on low, all African languages are like low resource. So what works uh, for low resource Uh, machine translation because uh, sometimes you find that most of the proven state-of-the-art methods that work on high-resource languages does not necessarily give uh, better results when it comes to low-resource languages. So that collaboration that we've had 
and has enabled them to maybe to gain insights into uh, low resource languages, especially African ones and the different language families in, in Africa. Another thing that I'd say uh, has happened for both, just gaining collaborators, so people that should work with on a project. And then so they've been able to find collaborators from Africa. We've been able to find collaborators who are really helpful uh, from the international community. And that is, we see that together we are doing work that is actually making impact. Thank you. All right, so as a result of a participatory research, Masakane has many, many, many success stories. You have developed new data sets, benchmarks, first uh, human evaluation study for low resource languages. And we will go deeper in one of these projects, but I invite the speakers to read all your papers. But let's talk about uh, named entity recognition for African languages. So can you tell us what are the languages you chose to focus uh, in this project and why? Yes, we, we decided to focus on, at least in this phase of the work, on 10 African languages, 10. And one main reason is the willingness of participants to annotate data, because we needed, in this particular instance, volunteers who were going to annotate the data that we had. So the 10 languages were actually Amharic, Hausa, Igbo, Kinyamwanda, Luganda, Luo, Nigerian Pigeon, Swahili, Wolof and Yoruba. So we needed participants. And, and of course, we had um, annotators for some of the languages. We had two annotators. For other languages, we had more than two. In some cases, we had up to six annotators. Uh, so if we had annotators, fantastic. Then we picked that language, uh, got data, and then we worked on annotating. Yes. How did you find your annotators? Oh, uh, yeah. You know, Slack was very helpful. <laughs> Again, Slack to the rescue. <laughs> yeah. So the, the thing is just announce on Slack. Oh, who's willing to join this project? Uh, and then you, you see quite a lot of uh, people jump on the bandwagon and indicate their interest. And they find the time within their own schedule. Uh, we, we gave, we, this was something that happened over a number of weeks. So just find the time, maybe it's on the weekend, because everybody, of course, ha, ha, has their own busy schedule. So maybe on a weekend, maybe it's one hour, two hours a week, just go online, annotate uh, the data, and, uh, and you save your work. And then the following week, you continue, you annotate some more, and then you save your work. So that was how we did it. So Slack was very helpful, and then we gave updates based on that. Yes. In terms of the number of uh, speakers, roughly how popular are these languages? Yeah, I mean, some of the languages are really quite popular. For example, Yoruba, which is the language I speak, my native tongue. You have over 40 million people, you can imagine, 40 million people who speak this language within Nigeria, West Africa, and around the world. Now, if I, if I could maybe make that a bit more concrete, and, and I compare it to the number of uh, people in Sweden. In Sweden, you have about 10 million people. And then you have 40 million people who speak the Yoruba language. So it's, it's like four times the size of the population of Sweden. Yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's a sizable number of people who speak the language. And um, 
they are spread uh, all across the world. Uh, of course, most are based in, in West Africa, in Nigeria. Then, of course, you also have AUSA, which also has millions of speakers, Igbo. Th- these three languages are situated in Nigeria, and Nigeria has a population of about 200 million people. So you see the numbers are there. So, yes, even other, like Swahili, Swahili apparently is reputed to be you know, the, the largest uh, uh, in terms of numbers of speakers as well. So the, the languages have really good number of speakers. So I worked on the language, I think, with the least, Luo, uh, with about 4 million. I think the number is around 6 million speakers. The number that included was native speakers. So, And uh, this was interesting because there are very, very few resources for Luo. We had to rely on one particular source to get uh, the initial like, content to annotate and even during annotation I remember I was the only one but then I just uh, <laughs> I, I set up message to a particular group with other Kenyans I was like oh hello I am working on this project if you speak and are fluent in the Luo and you love to join me working this amazing project please join and my co-annotator actually just shows she was interested, like, hey, I'm interested. Um, can I join you? Or do I need to know anything? I was like, no, you just need to be fluent in the language. And she was able to come on board and has integrated very well into the Masakani community since then. And yeah, that's how the magic of annotation happened. Can you tell us a little bit more about specificities of each of these uh, languages that then result in maybe downstream challenges uh, when we want to computationally model these languages? Yes. Some of the languages are, are quite similar. And then some are really worlds apart. Some are based on, you know, the Latin script. Some are certainly not uh, based on Latin script. For example, if you take the Amharic uh, uh, language, it uses the feudal script, which consists of 33 basic scripts. So it's it's quite different from the other languages that are based on 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 Latin. Even the Yoruba language, which I speak, is based on Latin script. But then again, you have differences because, for example, with the Yoruba language, it's a tonal language which uses diacritics. Uh, diacritics uh, are tonal marks. So these tonal marks tend to predict how you you pronounce the words the syllables of the words. Will your tone rise? Will it fall? Will it stay neutral? So you could have a word which maybe just contains six characters. And then you could have maybe nine different ways of pronouncing it. And that's super confusing if you don't have uh, the diacritics, except you're familiar with the language over time. Uh, And then you now use context to, to differentiate what is being said. So... The languages have similarities, and then they also have really huge differences. Yes. Um, thank you. And once you have annotated data, what is the size of this data, and how did you go about checking the quality of the annotations? Yes. Thank you. The, on average, per language, we, we had about 2,500 labeled sentences. Then, of course, you have to split them up into the training, the validation set, and then the test set. So the good thing for for checking quality was that, you know, we we had regular meetings or discussions within the language groups. 
uh, within the amongst the annotators. So you would have, especially when there's a there's a major challenge, we have discussions and meetings. So okay, we have this crisis. How do we resolve this? And then everybody pitches in. The good thing with the platform we were using for annotation, which is Elisa, was that uh, it was well suited for name identity recognition. And then you could measure inter-agreement score among the annotators. So this was very helpful. And of course, we wanted high quality data. So we had to have regular discussions, iron out differences, get training on what exactly we're annotating for. In this particular case, we had four categories, person, organization, date, and I think location. So we had this training and then we ironed out differences. And then, of course, we measured the inter-agreement score. So these were critical to determining the quality. Yeah, I noticed more and more that NLP researchers highlight that having interpersonal relationship with annotators is important for having high-quality annotations. All right, let's talk about what you have done with the data once you have collected it. You mentioned in the paper you have uh, three core models, let's call it like that, and then you try different additional techniques to improve these core models. Let's talk about the core models first. Like, What are these three core models? And can you tell us main observations you got from the results? We don't need to know all the details, just like what are the main highlights and takeaways? Yeah, like you rightly said, there were three main models we used, which seem very popular with uh, named entity recognition. The first would be CNN Bioless TMCRF. Uh, it looks like a long, complicated name, especially for people who probably are not familiar with uh, NLP or machine learning. Uh, CNN, interestingly, it seems more popular with um, computer vision, but, but we see that it's also used in um, NLP. The same way we have the transformer model also making waves in, in computer vision, even though it originated in, in NLP. So you tend to have borrowed models from one part of machine learning field to another. So we have the CNN Bioless DMCRF, uh, and then we also, the second one was MBERT. Uh, that's multilingual BERT. But uh, it's quite a famous uh, model. And then the multilingual version was trained, pre-trained on a larger number of um, languages. So the third model, we also experimented with XLMR or XLM Roberta. Roberta is very similar to BERT. Uh, it just has, um, it was trained on a far larger data set. And, um, uh, and, and then, of course, it didn't use the next sentence prediction as a language um, pre-training task. So those are the three main models we used. And then, of course, the Hugging Face Library, which is a, a growing library of, of deep neural, neural net models, was used, I mean, for, for the last two. That's the MBET and the XLMR. And we also observed from, from the result that reasonable performance was achieved. We have quite a lot of tables in the paper, so it will interest people to actually look into the tables. But especially the, the result from XLMR gave the best results most of the time, yes. Did you observe any variations across uh, 10 African languages, uh, especially those you mentioned that are very different uh, from others? Yes, there are variations. 
sometimes, of course, for example, the ones we with based on Latin script compared to the ones uh, which are not. Then also in further experiments, we also notice that, and this is very interesting, we have languages that geographically seem to be closer to each other when you do cross-lingual transfer learning, actually perform well when you when you to train on a relatively close language geographically. So it's interesting that you can actually draw these conclusions based on the geographical spread of the languages themselves. Okay. And how about these different techniques that you tried? Can you tell us what are these techniques and what happened when you added them to the models? Yeah. Uh, there were a number of other techniques we tried out. It's interesting that in NLP, we try all kinds of ideas. Uh, I think it's, it's the nature of science anyway. Uh, one was uh, using gazettas for name identity recognition. Gazettas are lists of named entities collected from manually crafted resources. So we use gazettas. And then, of course, we also used transfer learning, where we focus on cross-domain transfer from Wikipedia to the news domain. Uh, and then, of course, I mentioned earlier, cross-lingual transfer from, say, English and Swahili, any uh, our data sets to other languages uh, in our data set. So those were some techniques we tried out. There was domain adaptation from Wikian, uh, where we make use of uh, the Wikian corpus, which is actually available for five languages in our data set. That's um, uh, Amharic, Igbo, Kinyarwanda, Swahili, and Yoruba. But for example, talking a little bit in more detail about the cross-lingual transfer, we used the core NLL 2003 main identity recognition dataset, which is English, uh, and has over 14,000 training sentences. We use that to, to do cross-lingual transfer. And then we also make use of languages that are supported by the XLMR model. I think that has um, quite a sizable number of uh, uh, languages in its uh, pre-training. So we, we use that across languages in East and West Africa, uh, like Swahili and Aosa. Aosa, of course, is uh, spoken in Nigeria, in West Africa. So the English corpus has been shown to transfer very well to low-resource languages. This observation has been made even in other, other NLP tasks that, that have been worked on. So those were really interesting techniques uh, that we decided to try out. Yes. Did uh, any of them perform notably better than the other? Like, if you could recommend one to people who are working on low-resource languages, which one would you recommend? Uh, I think I think using gazettas uh, mm -hmm. is, is quite useful. And then, of course, cross-lingual transfer learning. So maybe cross... I think those two I would recommend anyway, using gazettas and then cross-lingual transfer learning. Because when you have... The more data you have, the higher the chances of success. So if we, can, if we get data uh, in one language, which has some relationship to another language, and then use that to boost my chances, then that, that's, that's really good. So I think I would recommend both. Notably for both, you need people who understand these languages uh, to tell you what are the similarities between them. Yeah. Well, kind of to, to finish and glue these two projects together, Can you tell us why the Masakana project was um, successful, as successful as it was with the participatory research? And 
like if we use standard appro- standard uh, research approach, why it might have not succeeded as it has? I think uh, the participatory approach was uh, more successful because I think first of all we had barriers that prevented people who know these languages uh, who speak them from participating. We had them lowered, they would like completely broken down. So that means we had more people to create content, to annotate the data, to do the translations. And then um and I think that was a really, really important factor in it being successful because there were people are treated as um like they're very important in the process and guided through things that uh, they are not very familiar with, and is like so they brought the whole success of the project. Another reason why uh, it was successful is because we actually had people who speak this language who have been part of this society, so we take part in this process, and um, that so like for example, I'll take a. Uh, evaluations. When doing evaluations, normally there are papers, there are people who have uh, done research on low-resource machine translation, but you find that they only have, they can only rely on automatic evaluation methods, which may not be the best way of evaluating the quality of a model. But then in this case, we had people who actually speak these languages to evaluate the model. And at the end of the day, you find that this improves the quality of the model that Happened. So this being inclusive, involving people who speak, who are part of the communities where these languages are used, and uh, making sure that every things that may prevent them from participating, you kind of bridge that gap. Uh, I think that's really uh, contributed greatly to uh, the success of the project. And I think lastly, I'd like to just also say add that the the kind of relationship that Masakani members have uh, with each other, especially with new members who are joining and who are not yet very familiar with uh, the NLP world. So there's this culture of mentorship of the senior researchers uh, guiding others. Um, and so we find that people have been able to, because when people come, they have the intrinsic motivation. This is something that I want to work on. But then when you also come and then you find a, a community that is supportive um, that is willing to work with you as you advance in your knowledge. Um, I think that really helps. It keeps people motivated. Um, it's a community that appreciates everyone and the input that they can bring. And so, yeah, the whole culture around Masakane working environment, I think it's something that if ad- adopted by others, we can see like more and more successful projects coming up in the future. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, I could talk about your research like forever, but there is a limit uh, for each episode. Is there anything else we didn't talk about that you would like to mention? No, but I will just really thank you for the opportunity you've given to Masakane to, to speak about our research. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's, it's our pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot. This was a great conversation. Thank you very much for joining.